0: Request Abhinav Agarwal to switch on his video. We'll move on to the second uh, session of uh, today's event. Uh, good morning, Abhinav. Namaste. Namaskar, Namaskar, Shri I do also happen to be uh, from the group uh, which uh, spent the weekend, uh, you know, the weekend with Wisdom Program of Indic Academy with Meenakshi Jainji at uh, the Gore the Niko Village. So I'm sure uh, a lot of that experience with her would show in this session. So let me formally uh, introduce uh, Abhinav and the session itself. So I have uh, a few notes. Uh, Let me read from that. So this session uh, will be about two books. Uh, The first book is uh, Parallel Pathways, Essays on Hindu-Muslim Relations, 1707 to 1857. This book was published by Conard Publishers in 2010. The second book is Sati. Evangelicals, Baptist Missionaries, and the Changing Colonial Discourse. Uh, this book was published by Aryan Books International in uh, 2016. So these are the uh, two books that Abhinav Agarwalji would uh, talk to Minakshiji about. Now, a, a short uh, introduction about Abhinavji himself. He's a software professional based in Bangalore. He is the curator of uh, Indic uh, Book Club um, for the past, I think, I don't know, five, six years, Abhinav. Uh, yeah, in fact, it was probably the, uh, it was in fact, the Indic Book Club, uh, which started first and then slowly Indic Academy came up from the mailing list, which was initially set up for Indic Book Club, if I remember right. Um, yes. And uh, 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 so Abhinav Agarwal continues to do fantastic work uh, as a curator of Indic Book Club. He also runs a website uh, for Indic Book Club. Uh, you know, everybody should. Uh, registered on this website and he himself is a fantastic avid uh, reader and, uh, you know, he writes uh, reviews. I was looking at his blog. He has written more than 224 book reviews. And of course, he has written uh, reviews for three of Meenakshi Ji's books, uh, The Flight of Deities, uh, the Sati book, and also the Rama and Ayodhya book. Uh, um, Abhinav uh, has done his uh, Uh, I think B-Tech at the University of Mumbai. Uh, He's a software professional. He's also done his management degree from IIM Bangalore. Uh, He's a gold medalist. Uh, He himself is an author. He has written a a mystery crime thriller, uh, Predators and Prey. It's published by Tree shared books. Uh, It's got rave reviews, uh, you know, from other authors like Ashwin Shangi, Anand Ranganathan, Hindol. I know Harini and Gautam Chikarmane, Harini Kalamur and Gautam Chikarmane. And they all say it's a book you can't uh, let go until you finish it. I encourage uh, all the participants today to uh, explore Abhinav Agarwal's work. He has written a lot of articles for India Facts and uh, Indic Today. His favorite subject is Mahabharata. And I think his two daughters have also written uh, on this subject. Uh, uh, So I now uh, request uh, Abhinavji uh, to uh, take over and start the session. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Sri for the very, very kind introduction and words. Uh, So Namaskar, everyone, and Namaskar, Meenakshi-ji, it's uh, a talk to you again. And, uh, you know, after November last year, when we had the the weekend with Wisdom Retreat, and I'll so as ji said, I will uh, uh, talk to you about two of your books. So the first one is uh, this one. It's uh, called Parallel Pathways, and it's uh, essays on Hindu-Muslim relations from 1707 to 1857. And basically, while your title says 1707 to, and which is when I think Aurangzeb died to 1857, which is when we had the first war of independence. You also spend a lot of time in the book covering the period uh, in this decades and centuries before that. But let us begin with 1857. So after 1857, uh, two things happened, right? The first one is that the British, uh, uh, you know, they resolved to pursue with a lot more vigor their policy of divide and rule. And when I think the British Prime Minister Palmerston wrote that, let us rule, these 150 million people in a manner that is uh, best calculated to leave them, that is Hindus and Muslims, divided. Second, you also wrote that uh, Muslim reformist movements that came up around that time, and I think was partly driven by the, the, the shock of losing control over large parts of India, especially northern India, after a long, long time to, you know, uh, to afford to uh, British rule. So this basically exhorted uh, Muslims to give up any Hindu practices that they had imbibed over the centuries. So does this not suggest that there had been some you know, amount of Hindu-Muslim unity that had been achieved in the decades before 1857. Obviously, your book has a lot to write uh, and and to tell us on that, but can you start with that? Is it a fair assumption when historians or eminent intellectuals of our day tell us that 1857 was the, you know, was the point, uh, uh, was the last point, and when Hindu-Muslim unity was achieved? Is that a fair statement?
2: I'm afraid I don't agree with the view of most historians on this subject, Uh, and I'd like to briefly explain, according to me, what the situation on the ground was. Uh, See, uh, the first Muslim state in India was established in 1206 in Delhi, what we call the Delhi Sultanate. Now, in this period, the ruling class for the first 100 years there was no representative of the subcontinent in the ruling class. So it was only all the people who were the rulers and their cabinet colleagues or ministers were people who were from outside India. And there was one Indian Muslim convert who was included in this council of ministers during this period, but he was executed for treason within a year. So, when we, so, we have to keep in mind that we're talking at two levels. One is the political level, and the other is the level on the ground. At this time, the conversions were not many. Because the people who came, they were conscious of their racial superiority. And they felt that if there are conversions they would have to regard the local people who have converted as their social equals, which they were not prepared to do. Now this strangled hold of the Turks on the political establishment was so strong that you know there was a revolt against this, what do we call the Khalji revolution. So they were another group who came from another region of Afghanistan and they established the Khilji revolution. After that, we have the Tughlaqs, in which we have greater participation of people from the subcontinent. So, at this time, during this entire period, the policy to, work, to adopt towards the Hindus was a matter of great debate among the Muslim religious classes, whom we call the ulema. And the ulema would tell the king that, you know, You are not ruling according to the tenets of your faith because you are allowing these people to continue existence. So there is a debate that has been preserved in the records of that time and the sultan is telling the ulema that right now we are like salt in a dish. Salt in a dish means that we are numerically so inferior that we cannot even begin to impose our tenets or our creed or our beliefs on the populace because we are too small. And Jalaluddin Khalji, the, you know, and says before Alaudin Khalji, he was the ruler. And he there's a statement of his that, you know, how do you think I feel when the Hindus pass below my balcony and proceed towards Jamnaji singing their songs, etc.? But I know that we have to wait until we are numerically stronger. So this was the view of the political establishment. They were uncomfortable with the fact that the majority of their subjects had not accepted their faith, but they were realists in the fact that they were numerically very small. Now, uh, what happens when the Mughal period begins? I will Come to that, we have Babur, he ruled for a very short time, and his son, who was hardly there. So actually, a Mughal rule begins with Akbar in the proper sense of the term. Now, uh, when Humayu came back to India, he brought with him his nobility or the ruling class. It consisted only of two groups, that is the Iranis and the Turanis. The Iranis were people from Persia or Iran, and the Turanis were from Central Asia. So when Akbar came, ascended the throne, these two groups were what he inherited from his father, that is the Iranis and the Turanis. Now, Akbar was a young boy of 13, and he had a nobility. The people were much older than him. They came from very distinguished families themselves, and they felt there was no need for them to accept the suzerainty of this young boy. So up till 1580, Akbar had to face a series of revolts against him by his foreign nobles. And in one revolt, that was the severest revolt, he was almost thrown out. And that is when Akbar realized that when you have a scale, then all the weight is on one side, that is the foreign nobles. So he said, I must counter that and have something on the other side. So that is when Akbar consciously decides to widen the scope of his nobility, and he introduces two new groups. One is the Indian Muslims, that is the people who have converted, And the other is the Rajputs. So that is the first time in the reign of Akbar that we have 30% of the nobility consisting of Indian Muslims and Rajputs, and the 70% foreign. Now, this policy of Akbar was not appreciated greatly by the religious divines, the ulema. And towards the end of Akbar's reign, we have. A person called Sheikh Ahmed Sirhindi. Now, Sheikh Ahmed Sirhindi is a very ardent proponent of the tenets of his creed, and he argues that the ruler, the emperor, should try to follow the recommendations of Islam towards the non-Muslims. So when you say that this divide of Hindu-Muslim divide or people say that Hindu-Muslim divide was the result of British intrigue, actually that is not so. Because I've told you what is happening in the Sultanate period and Muslim religious leaders, a large majority of them are saying maintain distance. So the story which can be traced in the sultanate period, but from the time of Sheikh Hamad Sirhindi, it can be traced right till independence. Who are these people? We can identify them. What do they teach? Because all that is available to us. And that tells us that a significant section of the Muslim religious leadership did not advocate amity between the community. I've lost your voice. Oh, sorry, I was on mute. Uh, so
1: thank you so much, Manakshi Ji. Uh, I will come back to a question on uh, Akbar's reign and one of the the changes that he instituted that had the huge, huge, uh, and you know, effects that last till this day. But I'm to stay with the 19th century, uh, uh, you know, for now before we go back in time. So. You write that when nationalism started to emerge in India, right, in the 1800s and so on, uh, you know, the Indian intellectuals at that time, such as and poets such as Bankim, Chandra Chatterjee, uh, you know, who wrote Anand Mat, he wrote about the necessity for peace, for nationalism to emerge on the one hand. And on the other hand, he also talked for the need for English rule to continue. So that is the Indian intellectuals were advocating by and large on the, on the one hand. Then if you look at the Muslim intellectuals at that time, like Sayyid, for uh, instance, or Iqbal, you know, the poet on, the, uh, on as another example, their writings were somewhat substantially different in what they were advocating. So can you tell us a little bit about the you know the the thinking attitudes of uh, muslim intellectuals in the 19th century uh, on the issues of nationalism
2: first i will tell you what was the hindu position now uh, in bengal that is where the the whole movement actually started uh, well before bankim there were a series of uh, activists scholars philosophers uh, concerned hindus who Uh, began the debate on what should the nature of uh, Indian nationalism be and actually what should be done to revive and regenerate Hindu society. And in fact, uh, the first one was Ram Narayan Basu or Raj Narayan Basu. And uh, he wrote a, a book on the objectives for a concerned Hindu. And he also started the Hindu Mela. You know, it was like Swadeshi. So his argument was that we have to empower our community. And empower means every section. So he emphasized the need for local crafts, local uh, artisans, local sports, local literature. So the Hindu Mela catered to all facets of the cultural heritage. So after him, there were a series of people who focused on the need to revive a culture that had fallen weak due to the passage of time and so many circumstances. Now, Bankim we know because he wrote so much and he tackled this issue head on. Bankim said, that for nationalism to thrive and prosper, we need peace. Because we have had so much turbulence that for our culture and civilization to regain strength, we have to have peace. And that peace can in the present circumstances only be ensured by the British. So that was his argument. But none of these people articulated a nationalism or a national sentiment that excluded anyone. And there is uh, Bunkin's book, Sitara, I think that's the title, in which uh, a yogi uh, tells this person who's the hero of this book, that, son, I hear you have come to found a Hindu kingdom. But I want to tell you that if you want your kingdom to be strong, you must include all sections of society in it. So what we, uh, what people say that Bankim was anti-Muslim, it is that he was portraying the experience, the historical experience, but he was conscious that Indian nationalism has to accommodate everyone. so okay, so this is uh, fair. I
1: think this is very consistent with what Indian nationalists have spoken and written about over the years. What about the other side? what about uh, you know iqbal also say the you know they were What one reads from your book, their writings were somewhat different. We know about uh, Sir Syed's lecture, I think, uh, uh, in 1886 or thereabouts, uh, where he advocated what is now known as uh, the two-nation theory for the first time. But he was not an isolated person in that sense. It was uh, fairly representative of the thinking at that time. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about that?
2: As I said... That uh, the dominant section of uh, the Muslim religious class had advocated separatism between Hindus and Muslims. And we have, I've talked about Sheikh Ahmed Sirindi. Then, after that, the next important person that I would like to mention is Shah Wali Ullah. Shah Wali Ullah, in fact, he was in the early 18th century. This was a time when the Marathas, the Sikhs, and the Jats were emerging dominant powers in the subcontinent. And Shah Wali Ullah was so disturbed by the rise of these powers that he invited the Afghan ruler Ahmad Shah Abdali to come to India. He said if you don't come, then you know you will not imagine what will be the plight of your brethren. So Ahmed Shah Abdali was invited by Shah Ullah to come. We know that Ahmed Shah Abdali uh, routed the Marathas in the Battle of Panipat in 1761, when entire generation of Marathas was wiped out on the battlefield of Panipat. And this was, but the un- remarkable thing about the Maratha leadership was, you know, that the top people. The Peshwa's son was also killed in this battle. So many people died. But within a few decades, the Marathas had sprung back and a new generation had come forth. But leave that aside. So we have Sheikh Ahmed Sirindi. Then we have Shah Abdul Aziz. Shah Abdul Aziz uh, writes uh, issues a Fatwa in 1803, I think. When he's when the British have entered Delhi, so now is India a land of peace or a land of war? And his fatwa instigates or encourages a section of Muslims to migrate from India, and they migrate to Afghanistan. All right, so this Sayyid Ahmed. Barelvi, he is one of the sub, Sayyid Ahmad. He is not to be confused with Sayyid Ahmad Khan. This is earlier. Sayyid Ahmad Shahid. He is. So he migrates with his people to Afghanistan and he is supported. He gets support from a huge number of people from Patna. So from Patna, at the other end, they are sending supplies to him in Afghanistan. Now, when he has migrated from India, one would think that his objective would be to take on the British because the British were the power in Delhi. But no, his fight was against the Sikhs, against Ranjit Singh's army. And finally, uh, in the battle with the Sikh troops, he is defeated and killed. So, the, so we have this Sayyid Ahmad Shahid. And after that, in Eastern India, we have a whole number of religious leaders like the Patna Caliphs, Dadu Mia, and so many others. And they travel all over the Eastern region and tell the Muslims that, please become good Muslims. Good Muslims means that if there are any customs that you share with other people in your area please do not follow those customs give up those customs so well before the british came there was a significant section of the muslim religious leadership which was advocating the giving up of all customs that you may share with your hindu brethren living in the same area so When you talk about common culture, common culture means that there are certain practices that are acceptable or observed by all. But there was hardly any movement in Indian Islam that I'm aware of, which was saying nurture those common traits. The emphasis always was, abandon those traits that you may have in common. So
1: this is, I think, uh, I'm reminded of what uh, Sir Syed Ahmed wrote, He, I think, uh, was the first uh, or among the first to describe this theory of distance, where he said that, uh, first of all, I think he attributed the the decline of the Mughal and the Muslim power in India to the fact that uh, Muslims had imbibed a lot of uh, Hindu cultural practices. And he said one way to get rid of that and to regain your strength is to... Uh, build your houses so far from the Hindu uh, uh, person's house so that you cannot even see the chula of that uh, person. That was the theory of distance, I believe, that he advocated. But coming now, I want to, uh, you know, I said I wanted to talk about uh, Akbar and one of his other influences on India that is, I think, very, very rarely talked about is that he did something, he... Instituted, he basically changed the language of governance across the entire Mughal Empire, and that has had uh, you know huge influences uh, on Indian society over the last four, five hundred years uh, or thereabouts. And when Mughal power started to decline, the, the you know that was replaced by the invention of another language which a lot of people attribute uh, it's not uh, uh, you know it's not new it's like as old uh, as uh, as a thousand years or so can you tell us a little bit about what those changes were that uh, akbar instituted why were they so important disruptive and and why is it that we don't talk about it uh, as much i mean no one's, i have not seen anyone you know talk about such a huge change and yet here we are
2: Uh, This is a very uh, interesting and important question that you have asked. Actually, Akbar was the first ruler to declare that Persian will be the language of administration at all levels. Which means that even the village accountant who is keeping accounts or records for the state has to keep it in Persian. So, overnight a whole section of the administrative class had to learn a new language to retain their jobs. So how was this done? First of all, Akbar imported a large number of teachers of Persian from Iran. And he modified the madrasa curriculum so that a large number of uh, people mainly Kayas and Khatris because they were the ones who were taking employment in large numbers, they could learn Persian very quickly. So this was a very, very revolutionary step and uh, no ruler in the Sultanate period had attempted something so radical. So uh, we have this uh, language, Persian language declared the language of administration. And what Akbar did, that he also instituted a post in his court, the person who's the best Persian poet. And uh, all the people who got that award or that post, except one, I think, were all people who had come from Iran or Persia. Now, uh, what was the problem with this uh, policy of making Persian the language of administration at all? The problem was, according to him, according to Akbar, the problem was that the language, Persian language may lose its purity. Because when non-Persian speakers are going to take to it, then obviously they're not Persian speaking. They're not Persian born. And it's an overnight change. So, it's but natural that non-Persian words will creep into the language. Like has happened in the case of English. English has so many words from India which are now regarded as proper English words and are also mentioned even in the English dictionaries. Bandh, like bandh, hartal, whatever. So Akbar was not willing to accept that. So he also got dictionaries prepared where a person who's a non-Persian speaker, if he is not knowing which Persian word to use, then he can look up the dictionary and know how to substitute that Hindi word or whatever word for a Persian word. So he was very clear that Persian has to retain its purity as a foreign language. And soon he acquired or the empire acquired the reputation of being non sympathetic to Indian languages. And it is said that when he conquered Gujarat, there was a mass scale movement of writers, poets, and thinkers from Gujarat to the south because they said that the Mughal state will not extend any patronage to us. Now, this was a very revolutionary policy and it had major consequences. But as long as the Mughals were the dominant power, they could enforce this policy. And there were a large number of people who were going on, coming from Persia also, to keep that link with that language alive. The problem happened when Mughal empire went into decline. When the Mughal Empire went into decline, then the Muslim elite wanted to retain their distinct identity. So language had been a constituent of their identity in the past and they were determined to use language as a marker of their identity in future. So this is the period when very eminent scholars like Amrit Rai have traced the beginning of Urdu. Before that, there was a common language, Hindavi. Hindavi had words from all languages. It had words from Persian, it had words from large parts of Northern India and parts where it was spoken. This Hindavi language was the common language and it was spread over large parts of India by the Goraknath, sons of the Goraknath movement and so many others, you know, uh, religious leaders who traveled over India, they took avdi with them, this uh, Hindvi with them. Now in the 18th century, when Mughal power went into decline, two things happened. One was that from this Hindvi, the Mughals in decline never thought of making Hindvi the language, which was the living language of the region. They wanted to create a Muslim language, if I can put it crudely, out of Hindi. So every word, see, that was of Sanskrit origin, was replaced by Arabic or Persian word. So you will see the sentence construction in Hindi and Urdu is the same because it was a common language. Mujhe yaha jana hai is the same in Hindi and uh, this thing. You know, ye meri pustak hai, ye meri kitab hai. Only the word pustak has been changed, but the construction sentence remains. So this movement of purification, creation of a new language by throwing out Sanskrit words, happens in the 18th century, and by the same group, that is the Naqshbandi Sufis, who also start the movement for social and cultural distance between the two communities. So it is the same group which is uh, working for language division, and it is the same group that is working for uh, cultural and social
1: Fascinating. So I will wrap up this uh, book uh, discussion. So this is uh, the book Parallel Pathways, and uh, published by Kunal Publishers. I will move, and uh, first of all, I didn't realize uh, I I overshot our our time. So I'm going to quickly move on to the next book, which is Sati. And this is uh, uh, the book. It came out in 2016. And this was, I'll say... Uh, in, in every sense of the word, this was an eye-opening book because most of us have this misconception uh, or we have yeah. a firm view of sati. Uh, if you talk to anyone, they will say, oh, it was regressive, it was patriarchal, yeah. it was, uh, and English, most importantly, all we have been taught is that in 1829, the English did us a big, huge favor by banning the practice of sati, thereby setting the stage for the quote-unquote modernization of Hinduism. Now, uh, my, my question, and, you know, Shefali covered this uh, in her first talk with you to some extent, and you talked about it, that uh, uh, most uh, foreign accounts of India, of Hinduism, were by and large positive till about the 18th century when the need for the evangelicals to come to India to proselyte uh, necessitated the the negative portrayal of India followed then by the justification of colonialism. So India had to be portrayed in a negative light. But I'll uh, ask one question, which is, what was the prevalence of Sati? How extensive was it? What was the element of coerciveness in it, if any? So what does, what do the historical accounts and records tell us about it?
2: Thank you for this question. The first definite account that we have of Sati is by the Greek historian, Deuterus. And that is before Common Era. He writes that Alexander, when he was returning from India back home, he had an Indian contingent in his army. The leader of that contingent was Shashi He died on the way back and to the amazement, of his army. Shashikuk's two widows came and started fighting among themselves on who will emulate with him. And this is the first eyewitness account that we have of Sati. The next account that we have is in the Iran inscription in the 5th century AD. So that means there's a gap of 800 years. I'm not saying that no sati may have been committed during that period but obviously it was not a common phenomenon because we're not talking about hearsay, we're talking about actual evidence that we have. And this Iran inscription gives the details of this lady and then we have the inscription of Dekabhi in the 9th or 10th century. She, her husband was, uh, you know, a general in one of the Chola armies. He died and this widow decided that she will immolate herself and her parents plead with her. And all that is written in that inscription. And she refuses to change her decision. And this inscription is put up by her parents in her honor. So these are certainly accounts that happened. But the number is so small. There is no account of Sati among the Pandya, Chola rulers till the 10th century. So again, it's a very rare practice. The next eyewitness account that we have is of Ibn Battuta. Ibn Battuta is traveling through Madhya Pradesh and he sees three women who are about to emulate themselves because their husbands have died fighting. So all these instances only emphasize one point. That sati was a rare phenomenon. I'm not saying it did not exist, but it was by no means common. And you know, a woman who emulates herself has to be of superhuman courage and of a totally different level. And Hindu society paid homage to the superhuman qualities of that woman by revering her. So the num- and the number was so small. No, you know, uh, and uh, we have people saying that every woman was committing sati in the Vijayanagar kingdom when the king died. And they say, you know, when Krishna Deva, the Raya died, hundreds of women emulated. But there is a scholar who has studied the sati stones in the Vijayanagar kingdom. Now, in the Vijayanagar kingdom, she has found around 100 sati stones so 100 sati stones over over two centuries so this is all empirical hard evidence and tell me
1: sorry uh, no so i didn't mean to uh, uh, cut you off so so far, you have said that going back to the earliest accounts, more than two thousand years ago, till uh, the, say the fall of the Vijayanagar Empire, about uh, you know five hundred years, uh, it was uh, firstly very isolated, not widespread, and mostly or almost always uh, uh, voluntary. So, my second question then is: How reliable, therefore, are the accounts of the Englishmen who very authoritatively declared? And we have accounts ranging from on the low end to 5,000 cases of sati a year to as many as 10 lakh instances of sati. I mean, and these accounts, unfortunately, are touted as authoritative, reliable, accurate, and the gospel by even very, very learned people today.
2: Why should we we give any credence to any of these accounts then? See, a couple of points that I want to make. Uh, First of all, these accounts that mention so many instances only become common at a particular period in Indian history, which I explained earlier, that is when the evangelical movement arises. Before that, the accounts that we have of Europeans, if you compare one account to the second, even the comma is the same. So it's one paragraph that has been written, it is reproduced in the second account, third account, and these accounts, are not region specific. So if you read the account, you will not be able to make out whether the incident is in Madhya Pradesh or Rajasthan or Gujarat or whatever, because you are just copying. And that is what I realized when I started collecting these sati accounts, because the earlier accounts are so specific. You know that this happened in this region. This was the girl. This is what happened to her husband. Family came and etc. etc. And uh, to continue with those accounts, I want to mention. Uh, two, three accounts, just to continue with that first, and I'll come to your question, that we have an account that happens near Calcutta. And it is a person who was working in the company, East India Company. And he dies, and he's from a very eminent family, and his widow decides to emulate herself. She was a very young girl. So the Englishmen are appalled, and the head of that company in Kasim Bazaar, he is called and he tries, His he and his wife are called and they say, you know, we remember him and you're like a child to us and please don't do it. So this entire description of how they try to dissuade so that girl is recorded in an English account and she's not able to do it. The second account is by William Sleeman. William Sleeman was a very, very important company official. And he's written an account which is fairly, so moving. It is called Sati on the bank of the Narmada. So he was the official over there. And there was this old woman who had come to immolate herself. And he was an eyewitness. And he says the entire family had come. And she, he said, you cannot imagine the power of the grandmother in an Indian household. She is the queen. And her word is law no daughter-in-law will dare to do anything without her permission and she is so loved by everybody and the entire family has come and they're saying don't do it don't do it don't do it and he says he also tried but she says my I'm already dead my soul has already gone so, so you know these are eyewitness accounts and the third is by a governor uh, of Bengal Fred Halliday he has also written a very moving account of you know how he said you cannot immolate without my permission. I'm the person who's ruling over here. And he tries to dissuade that girl and she's not uh, willing to listen to him and finally has to, uh, you know, reluctantly give his consent. So these are some instances which, uh, you know, people who are uh, looking at everything in terms of patriarchy, they will ignore. Now, i told you why the instances have become so common that is because of the rise the evangelical movement but that is not to say that there were no instances of forced kalhan in raj mentions one particular instance which i would like to say uh, he says there were two queens uh, you know when the king died then they said, we will emulate with him. And he says, uh, in one case, in both the cases, they bribed their ministers that you come to the cremation ground and dissuade us. And then, so Queen Didda, she saved herself by this strategy, which is recorded by Kalhan. And in the second case, the minister deliberately delayed his arrival So there was no option. But what I'm saying is that these so-called cases where people feel that they have to, they're very rare. Shivaji, the great Shivaji, his, when his father died, his mother said that I will emulate. He said, you will not. And she did not emulate. Uh, And one of his wives only emulated with him. One in the case of his son, So the number is actually very, very little. And why the number increases in the 18th, 19th century? As I explained to you earlier, it is the evangelical desire to present a catalog of horror to the British Parliament and the British public. No other practice in India received as much attention as sati in uh, British writings, colonial writings. Because, you know, it was intended to create shock and awe. They wanted to collect funds for their activities in India. So they appealed to British women that this is the way your sisters are being treated in India. Please contribute to save them. So this is a very well calculated kind of movement. Unfortunately, even today, if you ask any child, what do you remember about Benteke? they'll say social and religious reform movements, abolition of Sati. But the Indian contribution to the abolition of Sati, they have not mentioned. Did Shivaji practice or advocate Sati?
1: So, so, thank you so much. Uh, We are running short of time. I'll just say a few things about this book, Sati. This came out in 2016, published by Aryan Books. First. The overwhelming sense that I got was that the practice of sati was limited. It was uh, where the numbers exist and it, uh, we know is mostly in, say, Rajasthan, for example, where there is historical context for it. Yet, when the British started documenting instances of sati, they could find almost no, no cases outside of Bengal, and where, which had no historical uh, you know, legacy of sati there. But you're also right, that was because the British were ruling in Bengal. That's where they were. So it was a classic case of, a, of a searching where the light is rather than where, you know, the missing object was. Secondly, this was a classic case of the buildup of literature around sati, a classic case of atrocity literature. And the template was so successful, it continues to be practiced to this day, 200 years later. Unfortunately, uh, it is, I think, a more a reflection on our lack of intellectual curiosity that we still do not know all the facts. And a book such as yours does a tremendous service to open eyes of those who are at least willing to read and understand. And, uh, and, and finally, I'll say that uh, the, there is the role played willingly or otherwise by Indian reformers of that age and I will not get into that because we don't have the time. It's a fairly controversial topic. So I will leave it uh, for perhaps some other discussion. But I want to again, thank you, Meenakshi ji, for your time.
2: And thank you so much.
1: Always. Thank, a you so much. Thank, you.
2: thank you so much.
0: Thank you very much, Abhinav. I, um, I would also like to mention a small anecdote, uh, you know, from... Uh, something I have experienced myself. Um, Now this sati is so macabre, you know, it's so revolting that it is a very easy ploy to shock people, uh, you know, and influence them. In fact, when I was reading my, about 13 years ago, I remember when I was reading my uh, elder daughter's uh, fourth class history textbook. Um, so there 's a chapter they have uh, uh, which says uh, uh, the Gupta age right or the Gupta period so it starts off like this it says uh, uh, my daughter studied in the ICSC uh, uh, school in an i c s c school and it says the Gupta age was known was allegedly uh, you know known or called by some people as uh, the golden age, but um, women uh, position women's position was uh, quite bad, and uh, you know they were burnt to death on their along with their husbands, uh, you know, uh, dead bodies and pyres. And it dis- it goes on to describe for a fourth class child how exactly the pyre is set up and the body is burnt on the pyre. <laughs> so so this becomes the most important thing that they would speak about in a fourth class child's textbook, right? talking about the Gupta it, you know, so <laughs> yeah, uh, you're on mute Abhinav. Sorry, a very important point
1: as university that you know, the creation of atrocity literature, that template uh, of a Sati was so successful, it is practiced to this day. One point I wanted to make was that uh, in some ways, the banning of Sati took away an important part of a woman's agency away from her. So we talk about patriarchy. This. Uh, Banning of sati, in effect, had the result of taking away the freedom of choice from women. In, and this is especially poignant in an age and day today when we talk about the right to life and the right for people to decide when to terminate their lives. A supposedly progressive act had the result of pushing back, denying women their basic freedom. But they can probably arrest life. you for saying this. Well, I hope Indic Academy will come and save uh, (laughs) save me if that were to happen. But uh, that's all I wanted to say. Thank you once more. Thank you very much, Abhinav.